You are tuned in to Sound Science with me, your host, Dr. Yuande Pierce. Welcome to this special bonus episode of Sound Science. You may have noticed that Sound Science has been a little quiet for the past few months, and that's because I've been cooking up a few things behind the scenes, really just trying to bring you the best shows that I can. So thank you for being patient. The good news is that Sound Science will be returning with episode 15 on May 4th with a very exciting guest. Associate Professor of Music Theory at the University of New Mexico, Dr. David Bashwinner will be joining me. Um, I don't want to say too much about the episode, but I can tell you it's definitely one that you won't want to miss. So please stay tuned for that next month. Before I start, I'd just like to give you a disclaimer, which is that I'm currently recording this from my home studio, aka my kitchen and it's actually noisier outside than I thought it would be. So please forgive any interference with sound. There's actually some construction happening outside, which is strange, seeing as I thought we were all on lockdown, but um, the construction is still going on and hopefully it won't get in the way too much. Like everyone on the planet, COVID-19 has taken up the bulk of my mental space over the past few weeks. There's a lot of global uncertainty and fear and anxiety and sorrow about what's happening. And I don't think that there is a big enough carpet to sweep all of that under or a deep enough sandpit to bury our heads in. The reality is that this is happening and we have to just deal with it the best that we can. But I do feel like there is a lot of hope and amongst other things like taking a walk once a day and trying to meditate or do yoga or anything that helps. I'm actually also finding a lot of hope in science. I know I'm biased because I'm a scientist, but away from all of the media frenzy, there's actually a lot of really interesting research happening and I'm finding quite a bit of solace in that. So I wanted to share that with you. There is a lot of information out there, I'm fully aware. So this episode is not intended to add more to that for the sake of it. The bottom line is that science doesn't produce answers overnight. All we have at the moment are expert opinions and single studies that have not yet gone through the usual vigorous process of peer review, which we're going to talk a little bit about on the show. So I kind of just want to start off by saying that the CDC and the WHO have the most up-to-date, reliable information. And I'm sure you're already visiting those websites and I would encourage you to continue to do so. But there is also a lot of research that is being carried out, which isn't yet ending up on those websites, that I think is certainly worth thinking about critically. So if there's a buzzword for this episode, it's critical, maybe two, critical thinking. Today I'm going to be playing a carefully curated social distancing appropriate selection of tunes and chatting with immunologist Dr. Azza Gadir, who is a good friend of mine and incredibly smart and has agreed to join me on the show this month um, for this very special episode about COVID-19. She's going to be explaining what the immunologic progression of disease after getting infected with COVID-19 is and how that leads to pneumonia, which is ultimately what people are dying from. We'll also be looking at some of the latest research into whether or not we can acquire immunity to COVID-19 and how to test for that. And also what we need to keep in mind when reading about all the science. So stay tuned, more after this. 
really excited to introduce my guest on the show this month, Dr. Azza Gadir. Azza got her master's in the immunology of infectious disease, and she got her PhD in immunology from University College London and spent eight years at Harvard University working on the immunology of food allergy and role of the gut microbiome in the pathogenesis of disease. She's now head of research and development at Seed, a microbial sciences company pioneering applications of bacteria to improve human and environmental health. Azza, hi, welcome to Sound Science. Thank you so much for being my guest on the show this month. I'm just going to start off with asking how are you and also whether you would mind sharing with me what keeps you sane at the moment because I think we could all do with a few tips. Yeah, with all this self-isolation, I think trying to be business as usual a little bit. So making sure I get up every day at my normal time and I get dressed for the day. And it helps me kind of accept more that this might be the new normal, at least for the next few weeks. And that this isn't necessarily just temporary. And it's really helped my own mental health to be like, okay, I'm just, I'm working from home for now and that's okay. From the first week, quite happy about wearing leggings and um, jogging bottoms. And then at 2pm, I'd realized that (laughs) my world was falling apart. And I think it was to do with (laughs) the the jogging bottoms. So that's really good advice. Just going to say that before I started dressing for every day, I just get changed from my daytime sweatpants to my (laughs) nighttime ones and then thought that maybe I needed to mix it up a little bit. So totally relate to that. So true. Okay, well, thank you for sharing those tips. So let's start off with the big P, pneumonia. So pneumonia is not a mysterious disease. It's a fairly common complication which people are treated for all the time but in terms of COVID-19 it seems to be what leads to people dying so can you explain how COVID-19 infection leads to pneumonia and why it's proving fatal in the context of the pandemic? Sure so um, to start off with I'm going to caveat with two things which is first of all this virus is so new that we're still kind of working things out and the research is still quite early. And the second thing I want to add is that I'm not a clinician. So like I'll only speak to pneumonia from the mechanistic perspective of of what it is. So most of what we know so far about this disease, learnings that we've pulled from other coronaviruses and some of it is from like initial observation from the patients and the subjects that have had it so far. And so the majority of studies that have helped us understand the immune response to respiratory viral infections are actually experiments that have been done in mice. And so what we know is that we know that the virus is entering the body through um, a receptor called ACE2. So there's a spike protein that is on the surface of the virus and it's engaging this receptor that we have in our airway. And that's how it's actually getting into our bodies and triggering an immune response. And so what you have is that after the virus is entering, and some of this is a little bit theoretical, but what you have is that you get the initial kind of cells on the scene that that recognize that the virus is there. And they'll rush over, and these are kind of non-specific cells that just have identified an invader and have started to attack it. So you have this infection and your body's fighting it. And essentially what happens is based on the viral load or the amount of virus that you have in your body, these cells start to get overwhelmed. And if you're not managing to fight this virus effectively, then what happens is that you get the initial cells on the scene running and recruiting the big boys, which is kind of our adaptive immune response Mm -hmm. and our mature response. What we think at this point is that people who are mainly asymptomatic but infected are people who at this stage, their innate immune response is effectively fighting this disease. And in some cases, the big boys, the the serious cells that are more specific, have been recruited and are, are managing to control 
and kind of keep this virus under check. And so for people who are getting a little bit more severe infections, their mature immune response, their adaptive immune response has been recruited. And now you have this all out battle where you have the adaptive immune cells and your first cells on the scene fighting it. And what you get as a side effect of of driving this pro-inflammatory response that's fighting the virus is you get pneumonia occurring essentially as a side effect. So you get the viral responses occurring in the lungs. And then as a side effect, some of the air sacs that are in your lungs are starting to fill up with fluid or pus that's created as a result of the immune response that you're seeing it starts to get harder and harder to breathe. And so depending on how difficult your immune system is finding it to fight this virus, based on the viral load, the amount of virus that you have, then you start to see in the clinic how severe the response to the virus is. And that's the difference between people who are asymptomatic and controlling, people who are somewhat controlling and are seeing some co- some dry coughing and some initial symptoms, and then people who are going on to full-blown severe disease are people who are struggling to fight the virus and then in addition, the side effect of pneumonia. Thank you for explaining that. I think something that is quite interesting about the immune system is that it's meant to be protective, but it sounds like actually it's contributing to the, the problem. The thing about the immune system in general is that it's a, it's a constant, I think, internal mm-hmm. battle that it has between fighting an infection, but also simultaneously keeping in mind that it's supposed to not hit anything that's healthy and bystander. And so it's like a constant battle that the immune system is going back and forth with, which is need to get this invader out without impacting anything else. And so I, I think that's the little bit of the struggle is that that's where you get the immune system. Sometimes it does fail the latter and will start to just pummel so many pro-inflammatory elements that you start to just just hit other targets. Based on our immunity, a big question that is coming up a lot, and I think many people are crossing their fingers for, is whether or not we can actually acquire immunity after a COVID-19 infection. So there is a preprint of a paper involving research groups from, I think, about 10 different labs across China and the US on the heated debate around reinfection. So I'm going to ask you to talk a bit about what the paper found. But first, just so we can make sure that we're all on the same page, I thought we could do a quick fire round of some key definitions which are going to come up in our discussion. But okay, so first of all, what is a preprint? So um, a preprint is a version of a paper that has not been peer-reviewed yet. So so typically, and, and I think both me and you have experienced this, typically you write a paper, you get some results in the lab and you write a paper and then it goes to a journal, which will send it out to other experts in the field. It's the responsibility of those experts who are reviewing the paper to make the paper better. So they'll poke holes in it, they'll ask you for more experiments, etc., and address any issues that you might have left out for whatever reason. And so a preprint is when the manuscript has been written and the paper has been written, but it has not been peer-reviewed yet. So it's always worth keeping in mind that with COVID, for example, the science is moving way faster than peer review is able to kind of vet what's good science and what's bad science. So there's a lot of preprints that we're seeing spring up online and the data is valuable, it just has not been vetted yet. And that process is just to ensure that the science that is published and that is out there is trustworthy. Otherwise, you could just, you know, do exactly. an experiment, write up, you know, whatever conclusion you fancy, and then people would take it as gospel. So that's a really important thing to keep in mind, which I think we're going to come back to at the end. A couple of technical definitions. What is the difference between RNA and DNA? 
most of our audience are aware of DNA, but we're going to be talking about RNA. What are the differences between the two? Yep. DNA and RNA actually perform very different functions. So your DNA is responsible for kind of storing and transferring genetic information. So your DNA has in it all of the genes that will encode anything in your body is you'll find it in the DNA. RNA actually codes for the amino acid. So it it acts as a messenger between the DNA and then things called ribosomes which then go on to make the proteins. So the main difference is that your DNA signature can actually have a lot of redundancy. There's a lot of it that's inactive, doesn't necessarily give that much information in terms of understanding what it means for your health. Whereas RNA is more accurate because it tells you what has made it past the DNA checkpoint and is now actually being made into a protein that serves a function in your body. So RNA is more of a readout of function as opposed to DNA, which is just whether something is possible or not in your body. That's going to be really significant when thinking about um, some of the results from this paper that we're going to talk about shortly. Finally, what is PCR and what is seriology? So um, most coronavirus testing um, that is currently being discussed by like any public officials or the media is actually referring to PCR, which is polymerase chain reaction testing. And so these tests will start with a nasopharyngeal swab. So it's a swab that goes up your nose all the way back into the throat. And they collect, the swab collects bits of mucus or saliva or bits of cells. And if present, it'll also pick up viral RNA. So it'll tell you if there's a virus functioning in that swab. The samples will then be sent to a lab and the researchers will put chemicals in that will get rid of everything apart from the RNA. So then what's important is that when you run a PCR, the ends, there are enzymes that you then add that will transcribe or kind of copy the RNA into the DNA, and then the DNA is read. So what a PCR will tell you is yes, no, is there a virus there, this very specific virus, and a PCR is specific. So you're going in and you're searching for like coronavirus when you're doing a coronavirus PCR, you're not just pan screening for any virus. The difference is that a PCR will essentially only tell you if there's an active infection occurring in the nose. Um, And what's really important in terms of a pandemic is that we need to be able to detect if someone has been exposed to the virus at any point, because then it'll it'll allow us to address Mm -hmm. this issue of immunity. So serological tests will actually search for these things called antibodies to the virus. And antibodies are what your immune system will end up making when it's fighting a virus. So when you have a viral invader, it sets off, as we discussed earlier, a series of immune reactions. And one of the outcomes of those immune reactions are things called antibodies. And these antibodies are really specific. And so what they do is that after they're made, every time a coronavirus or COVID-19 enters the body, the antibodies will run over and they will coat it and they'll stick to it and they'll make it easier for the rest of the immune response to identify that this thing is around. It's like another immune checkpoint that we have. And these antibodies actually stay long-term and they can be reactivated over time if you're every time you're like exposed to a virus. And so what a serology test is doing is that it's looking for these antibodies because the presence of those antibodies will let us know that actually there has been infection in the past and this person may have immunity and will no longer be under risk. If they come out of self-isolation, they're not at risk of A, being contagious and spreading it anymore because they have immunity and B, themselves, they won't be under risk.
Now we have that out of the way, let's go into the paper. Paper is involving research groups from 10 different labs across China and the US, and it's all about this heated debate around reinfection. So I'm going to ask you to talk a little bit about that and what the paper found. So, yeah, what's the paper about, Hazza? <laughs> <laughs> Put me on the spot. Um, so the paper basically looked at, was, was trying to assess whether it is possible to answer this question of reinfection. So to, to just go back a little bit, it would be our worst case scenario if every time you got infected with this virus, you would have to mount a new immune response to it and start again, because it means that we would keep seeing waves of this pandemic. And what all of the data is kind of showing so far is that it might be possible actually, with we are seeing with COVID-19 that you, you, you're able to acquire immunity to it. What that means is that if you have already had it and say you wait a couple of months and then you get reinfected with it again, you're not going to get the same response to it. The body's going to immediately, your immune system will kick in and produce the same antibodies that it was primed to have previously and start to attack that COVID, the new COVID-19 infection. And so a very important question that we needed to answer is, is it possible to get immunity or is it possible to continuously be reinfected with this? So what they found in this paper was that they looked at people who had been infected and recovered and people who had claimed that they had then gotten reinfected a couple of weeks after they'd already fought the virus. And this whole reinfection issue has been problematic because in order to test it, you need a trial similar to what they did, where you test someone before, you test someone the second time and prove that they had the infection both times and they managed to be reinfected. And until this paper came out, nobody had really looked at that. And so what they found was that in the cases of reinfection, they don't report any clinical characteristics of the disease, which proves that there might be immunity. The other main finding that they report in this paper is that detection of RNA with a PCR is not that informative because all it tells you is that the RNA is there. It doesn't tell you whether um, the immune system is effectively right. fighting it and whether there should be a concern. And so they kind of draw a line under this reinfection thing where they say, A, PCRs aren't the best way to measure reinfection because it'll just say to you that the virus is there, but not necessarily the immune response is fighting. And B, that they say that there's no clinical symptoms with reinfection, which is a really important finding. I mean, this research is very recent. So a lot of the debate has been about whether we can actually acquire immunity to this infection, which if we can't, then that makes it even more petrifying. I was just going to add one more thing, which is that this is particularly relevant when you think about healthcare workers, when you think about the fact that in an ideal situation, we want healthcare workers that have been infected with it to be protected if they were to go back to the task force and continue treating. And so this kind of draws a line under the fact that if you're a healthcare worker who's had um, coronavirus infection um, and you've fought it and you're now doing better, you can go back to the task force and treat others with no risk of spreading it to them. So what they're saying in this paper, just to recap for the audience, is that the method of detection is crucial as many RNA negative samples tested positive under a hypersensitive method, and that there is a difference between testing by PCR versus serology, is that right? There's also yeah, another correct. paper by a research group in China on how the timing of testing might play a role, but also represent false negatives on PCR. 
So what is the evidence that this paper presented to support this? So what they did in this paper was that they did both serology testing and they also did PCR testing and then wanted to compare the two. So for serology testing, they looked at different types of antibodies. You can have multiple types of antibodies. You can have IgM, you can have IgG, but we're just going to, for the purpose of this conversation, just call them antibodies as an umbrella term. And so um, these antibodies, we know now that you start to see them come up at around 15 days. So 15 days after infection is when your body starts to mount a response that's so effective that you see this production of antibodies. And so what they did in this specific paper was that they looked at different time points and they tested both for the viral RNA, so the presence of the virus, and for presence of the antibodies. And what they found was that depending on the time of testing, you could pick up serology testing, so you could pick up antibodies, inferring that there had been an infection and an effective immune response mounted, whereas you couldn't pick up the the viral RNA in the PCR, so you were getting negatives. So what that means is that if the average person who might have been asymptomatic and had the disease goes into the clinic and gets a PCR test, if their immune response has effectively fought the virus, it is highly likely that they're going to show a, a negative response on a PCR. And so they will walk out of the hospital thinking, oh, I've never had corona. I don't have corona. I'm not a problem. I'm not going to infect anyone. I might not be contagious. Whereas the serology testing was showing that even in the cases where people were testing negative for the virus, you could see the antibody. So then the, the same person with a serology positive test would walk out thinking, I've had the virus in the past. I know I'm probably not contagious. I know I'm not contagious. I've mounted an immune response. I'm safe to be out and about. I'm not putting others at risk and I'm not putting myself at risk. So that's what kind of the nice message that came out of this paper was that serology testing is actually way more valuable than PCRs. But I I, I mean, I think that most scientists think that we probably need both. I mean, the most effective thing based on this research and similar research is to have the PCR testing together with the serology testing to, I guess, A, confirm that you you don't have the infection currently when you go in at the time of testing and you're not contagious, but then to also have the serology testing because that's a way for us to start thinking about how we can get people, you know, back into society. Exactly. One other paper that, one other group is the Kramer group that are at Mount Sinai. um, And they are, they have also been doing a lot of serology testing. um, And their messaging has been really awesome because what they have established just based on kind of the antibody profiling that they're seeing in people who've been infected, it's that humans, which we already kind of expected, have never encountered this virus before. This is a completely novel virus. So essentially all of us are immunologically naive to it and we don't have any natural immunity to it. And that kind of explains why the virus has spread so quickly and how it became a pandemic because we're not seeing any early antibody responses being mounted to this virus. And and sometimes if you've been, you'll see with viruses, if you've been infected by a virus who's in the same family, but not the same, you'll still see some antibody responses mounted. But with this COVID-19 coronavirus, this group didn't see any antibody responses mounted. And then just to reiterate your point about serology testing is that, yes, once you have immunity and proven immunity, you can go about your business and move around and, and go back to kind of restoring the economy. And then as the number of people rise that have this antibody, it'll also confer kind of a herd immunity because the virus will find it harder to spread if a substantial number of the population have a mounted immune response that's been proven by serology testing. A quick caveat that I just wanted to sort of pick your brain about a little bit, which is coming up a lot, is the idea of 
the virus mutating and all of that immunity that we may have to it going out the window. So in general, viruses, again, go into your cell, hijack, and they're, they're maestros at evading the immune response, or at least they try to be. And so the biggest fear is that the virus, if we just let it spread and don't implement any like measures or don't self-isolate, different viral strains, when they will encounter each other, will like switch different aspects of themselves to form a new strain. This has been a very big issue with other viruses. For example, the influenza virus that is incredibly effective at mutating every year, which is why the vaccine, while effective, isn't as effective as it could be because the, the flu virus mutates every year. And so our biggest suspicion with coronavirus and a big concern with COVID-19 was that it was going to mutate so quickly that if we come up with a vaccine in April, by the time September comes around, we'll have a new strain that won't respond to the vaccine. But what actually most of the data is showing, and a lot of virologists and chemists have now shown, is that actually, A, it's while it does mutate and there have been mutations picked up on the strains in the US compared to the strains in Wuhan and in Italy. The virus doesn't mutate at a rate that means that a vaccine won't work and won't be applicable and means that we have to keep coming up with new vaccines for it. So that's one comforting thing is that we can draw a line under this and say that the COVID-19 virus is not as virulent as the influenza. It is not mutating at a rate so rapidly that it means that we need to worry about a vaccine that we're working on now not being relevant So the last thing I wanted to talk about, which I think we as scientists are both very passionate about, is the fact that science in this moment of need is moving much faster than the peer review process. Both written peer reviews, and I think we can agree that it's not a small undertaking. In the absence of peer review, can we distinguish between COVID real news and the noise, or do we have to just use our guts? Yeah. So peer review is, is really, really important because if you are a scientist and you're designing an experiment or running a clinical trial, you have to make sure that your assessments and your conclusions make sense and that they're sound. And so what you'll have often when you submit some science to a journal and it's peer reviewed, the reviewer will get back and they'll say, did you use a placebo control? Who are these people that you picked? Um, do you have the right control groups in order to make this conclusion or are your biases just plucking out the result that you want? And so that's why peer review is an incredibly important checkpoint for scientists. But right now, as you said, the science is coming out faster than peer review can touch it. So I think that the main thing that I would say is that this is probably a good exercise for all of us to practice our clinical thinking. When you read articles or headlines or, or papers that are coming out on coronavirus, try to really keep an eye on the detail and keep in mind that the science is moving very quick and could be subject to change. And so one resource that I use is Twitter. So I follow a lot of kind of clinicians and researchers that are very, very smart. So David Lear, he's a chemist, he's at the broad. And so for understanding a little bit more what the virus is and what it looks like, mm -hmm. I tend to go for him and see the, the publications that he's posting. When it comes to more kind of clinical readout, I follow Eric Topol, T-O-P-O-L, who's a cardiologist in San Diego. He's been really phenomenal at picking apart like this is a clinical paper that I would take information from. This is another one I wouldn't. When, when I start to kind of see tweets about the science that's coming out, I go to the person, I see who the person is, what they're trying to think about what their biases are before I fully trust kind of what they're posting and, and the work that's coming out. But it is a difficult time, I think, for everyone, whether scientist or non. I think all of us in mind are trying to just practice critical thinking and just try to like not get too carried away with the clickbaity headlines, you know? 
know. At this point, we don't know for certain that there's one treatment that works better than another treatment. We don't know for certain that immunity is going to last past the next two months. This virus has only been around in the US since January 20th. And so that's not even 10 weeks, or maybe it is 10 weeks at this point. But yeah, just keep in mind that it, this is still very recent and the science is still coming, trickling out. I couldn't agree with you more. I think that it is just about maintaining an attitude of critical thinking and asking questions, which is why I'm so grateful that you agreed to be on the show for this bonus episode. It's been an absolute pleasure. I'm amazed at all of the science that you're able to keep up with. And I have to thank you personally for being my inspiration for not burying my head in the sand. Thank you so much for your insights. I'm going to put a few details on the show notes. Um, I'm going to put up those papers for anyone listening with a science background who's interested or without a science background. Um, send me your questions. Um, and also, um, I'm going to write up what, uh, as is recommendations for the Twitter, the people on Twitter. I'm now actually into Twitter for this reason. So I think that's it from me. Thank you so much for tuning in. I hope you found some comfort in hearing about the incredible research efforts that are happening. For show notes and track listings, please go to www.soundsciencepodcast.com. If you like the show, please leave a short review on iTunes where you'll find the podcast version of the show powered by Dublab. And even better, please share it. If you want the full show with all of the tracks included, then you can find that on the Dublab archives in a few days. Keep safe, keep sane, and I'll see you next month.